Marini's Media. For the rest of this month, this month being September 2020, you can take out a subscription to The Athletic for the frankly ridiculous price of £12. And that's not £12 a month, that's £12 for the entire year. That's unrivaled football writing and analysis from the very best people in the business, a brand spanking new breaking news service and ad-free versions of each Athletic podcast, all for just £1 a month. Go to theathletic.com slash totally to get started. Totally Football Show. Today, a brand new season is underway. At Anfield, El Loco commotion as electric leads almost give Liverpool a real shock. Elsewhere, it's a bad weekend for the Hammers, but a good one for Hammers. And while Spurs slump, it's Arsenal this time who have a Fulham crew trailing them all afternoon. We review the opening day's action, discuss the rule of 10, why matches don't go to double figures, and much, much more in this Totally Football Show in association with Paddy Power. Hello, listener. It's Monday the 14th of September, as you probably don't need reminding. We are six games into the opening weekend, and here on the Totally Football Show, we're joined by author and journalist Daniel Storey. Hi, James. Hello, Daniel. Author and tactical historian of the Premier League era, Michael Cox is with us. Hi, James. Hello, Michael. As is commentator and fabled seer, Matt Davis-Adams. Matt, since you're here, Mm. make the, the, the curtains twitch and the candles flicker in our imaginations with one of your predictions as we stand at the start of a new campaign what's going to happen something big come on i mean i'd just like to take this opportunity to announce my retirement from the predictions game having won it last season um no i don't know (laughs) Uh, uh, (laughs) give me give me till the till the window closes i did think today watching the um watching the late game that eric dyer and deli alley could play a really important part in west ham's promotion bid next season but um i won't quite make that one official yet Right. Okay. Uh, watching the action this weekend, Denim John says, "I'm not whelmed. Could you help me uh, be more excited about the weekend?" I'm not sure what Denim John was expecting because I, I thought that was a weekend that had kind of everything. I mean, everything except fans, of course. But you had whirlwind attacking goals fest like the one at Anfield, gritty attritional wins like Selhurst Park, and some really sparkling debuts. I thought it was pretty good. Yeah. I mean. Um... It probably took me. I, I kind of had to get over the lack of fans again because, like, the start of the new season just feels like, you know, the end of a season is about deciding results and deciding the table, whereas the start of the season is about fan excitement. But yeah, once I'd got over that, I thought there were some really great games. Uh, even the the last one, only one goal in it, Everton Spurs, I thought was quite an intriguing game. So yeah, I was relatively whelmed. Mm. Yeah, I was pretty whelmed too. But the the fans thing, I think I'd kind of naively led myself into believing that the start of this season would be different to the end of last season. Um, and, and of course it isn't. It doesn't look like it's going to be for quite a while. And it, it is difficult to to get used to and, and get as infused by this. There's a really good piece actually on The Athletic that's gone up today by Stuart James about kind of missing the, the match day experience. And um, there's a line that he's put in there that says, it, it's just a football match now, no more than that. And if you read the piece, you get the context of it. But I, I do kind of get that. And maybe part of that's because I've stopped watching with crowd effects as well. And so you are just, you know, there are times where it does feel like you're watching a training session rather than watching a Premier League match. And it's still, it's better than nothing, but but it's not what it was. I see, Matt. All right, well, the score so far, we've just seen Everton actually on this Sunday get their first away win against a big six side 
in 41 attempts, uh, a 1-0 victory at Spurs earlier today. Leicester uh, won 3-0 at West Brom. All the promoted sides losing, in fact, on this opening weekend. Saturday, Arsenal proved they can do it on a warm September afternoon in Fulham. A 3-0 for them. Liverpool saw off Leeds just in a seven-goal humdinger. Palace upset the predictions with a 1-0 win over Saints. And Newcastle uh, won 2-0 away at West Ham in the one club you wouldn't swap your owners with derby. Uh, Monday coming up later on today, there's Wolves at the Blades and Brighton hosting Chelsea. All right, well, we're going to draw some uh, some hasty conclusions on the opening 90 minutes in the games that have been played. Let's start at Anfield. You're listening to The Totally Football Show, sponsored by Paddy Power and part of the Athletic Podcast Network. Taken by Robertson, touched by Strauch. Oh! Salah! The goals are not going to stop. Are we watching a computer game and sort of me? I mean, <laughs> match of the weekend: Liverpool four, Leeds three. Liverpool preserving their undefeated home run in the league, which now stretches to sixty matches, but only just. It took a wayward leg from Leeds record signing Rodrigo with just two minutes to go that earned uh, Jurgen Klopp's side the penalty with which they earned the three points. Wow! How did Leeds do what they did to Liverpool? Luis Kaya says, my uneducated eye suggests that they just pressed them broke with lots of men. But what's the educated explanation of the Bielsa tactics? Yeah, I mean, I don't think that's an unreasonable summary of the situation. Um, I think the main factor they had was lots of men going in behind. Liverpool play a very high defensive line and I think that caused them problems on various occasions. I think they just put Liverpool's defenders under pressure in certain situations. I mean, Virgil van Dijk made a very rare error for for the goal. Um, And of course, I mean, we can only give Leeds a certain amount of of credit because they conceded four goals. But when you look at the concessions, I mean, two of them were penalties kind of out of nothing. It wasn't like Leeds were really opened up. One was, okay, poor defending from a set piece. And the other was a pretty unstoppable Mohamed Salah strike. So, yeah, I, I was just impressed by the intensity, by their commitment to attack, and um, they probably fared better than I expected, really. I kind of thought they would play well and, and lose, but they probably played better than I thought um, and didn't lose by as much as I thought. On the subject of Van Dijk's error, Sasha, who watches a lot of Liverpool, says, uh, I think that error was actually just Bielsa really doing his homework because he spotted that that's how Van Dijk deals with balls coming in over his shoulder and has, has, has told Bamford to go and exploit that. Broadly speaking, what what was your take on, on Leeds, Daniel? Yeah, I mean, I think there are two, two elements or two stats kind of summed up quite nicely. One pretty tenuous and the other less so. Uh, the first is that Liverpool had less possession than they almost always have against non-Big Six teams. Um, the only other time they've had less possession against a non-Big team at home in the Premier League under Klopp was against Brighton when they were reduced to 10 men with 20 minutes to go. So that kind of skewed it slightly. So that was the first thing that, you know, they didn't, they do press, but they don't just, it's not quite harem scarum football in that they, they get the ball and then immediately try and score. You know, they do look quite direct, like with the, you know, for, with like Phillips for Harrison's goal, but there's a little bit more to it than that. And the other thing which, which we do know about Leeds under Bielsa is just that intense pressing and tackling. You know, it's the most by an away team in a Premier League against Liverpool uh, under Klopp, 33 tackles. So, yeah, both of those things kind of sum up Leeds. And 
Bielsa was kind of annoyed after the game and understandably so because he said it's all very well and I'm very happy with how we played but you can't make those mistakes and if you make those mistakes in this league we're going to get punished and I guess my only concern was it felt like as soon as they got the third goal it looked like getting that goal had really sapped them of energy and they looked pretty tired in the last 10-12 minutes which is understandable against Liverpool but it's also the start of a pretty long season Uh, they coped pretty well last season with it but um yeah, I I don't know how that goes deep into a season, but it'll be really good to find out because it was so watchable. There were a couple of things that I noticed, obviously having watched Leeds fairly closely for the last couple of seasons. The, the first was the, the real flip reverse of a Virgil van Dijk error leading to a Patrick Bamford goal with his first shot of the game, which was not something that happened very often uh, last season. And, and in terms of mitigation for the concession of, of four goals, they were without their captain, Liam Cooper, who's a centre-half. And alongside him last season was Ben White, who was probably the best central defender in the Championship, who's now back at Brighton. So they've got two sort of relatively untested players in that position. So I guess you could you could give that as as an excuse. And and Jack Harrison scoring and just the, the story of, of his route into football and the way that he's got to where he is now, which I think is is really remarkable and something that kind of hasn't been reported on enough so good to see him making headlines report on that story for us Matt so he uh, was or is from Bolton uh, raised in a single parent family by his mum Uh, he was at Man United as an under eight she took a very close interest and didn't feel like he was getting the kind of attention that he ought to have done and that the idea that United had was of this big group of kids we get one through that's fine and she didn't think that was going to work for him so she did a lot of research and found that there was uh, a private boarding school in Massachusetts Massachusetts, which she thought would be good for him because they had a good coach. Uh, She applied for a scholarship there, got a full scholarship after allaying fears of the school about uh, Jack Harrison's physique and stamina. She provided them with a medical report from Man United about his bone density, which indicated that he would actually fill out quite nicely as an adult. He goes Uh, to this school. How old was he at the time, Matt? Uh, uh, This time he would have been early teens. Um, Right. So he goes that, to the school. I mean, to put that in perspective, so they're from Bolton. That's kind of like, that's further than you would go for a COVID test, essentially. They went all the <laughs> way to Massachusetts to find an adequate educational facility. Yeah, yeah. He goes through that, gets into the collegiate system, actually gets drafted in the MLS by Chicago Fire, but they trade him to New York City, obviously parent club. Uh, being Manchester City, who spots something in him, take him back. Patrick Vieira was the uh, the New York City FC manager at that time. Uh, he There's a story about him having watched England in Euro 2016 at Frank Lampard's house in, in New York. Uh, and anyway, yeah, City take him. He becomes a City player and now he's in his third season on loan at Leeds. Scored at Anfield on his Premier League debut. It's a pretty incredible story. It's amazing. Uh, do you agree broadly with Daniel's point about tiredness and fatigue? Or was, was your take on them more positive? Um, yeah, well, this is the classic Bielsa thing that normally comes at, at the end or around the middle of the season, actually, is when you start to say that they're looking tired. But yeah, I did think that in this game. And, and it, if it happens to one player, it's going to happen to all of them because inevitably with, with the style that they play, the key to making it work is that everybody buys into it. So everybody's going to be exhausted by the end of the game if mm. they've been doing their jobs properly. That said, it was a remarkably gutsy performance the way that they came back three times against the champions who'd, who'd taken the lead. You mentioned the new faces at the back, one of them, Robin Cock, conceding that penalty uh, because of handball. Cock blocking, actually, to borrow James Horncastle's line. 
uh, within three minutes of his uh, Premier League debut. And uh, Mo Salah with a couple of penalties and a, and a brilliant other goal, but a couple of crackers as well. The That long ball from uh, Calvin Phillips up for the uh, the Harrison goal was very, very special. Uh, more of that, please. Yeah, and I think that will be quite an encouraging thing that Leeds managed to get one of their key players in space. Um, despite the fact that Liverpool know how they're going to play. I mean, sometimes people talk about a team coming up from the Championship. Oh, they might surprise people. I mean, Liverpool will have so many opposition analysts who have been scrutinising the way Leeds play, and they do play in a very particular way. And yet it wasn't that Liverpool were surprised by them. I think it's just that Leeds do some things uh, very well and, and cause the opposition problems. I think equally, probably for the Leeds players, it was a bit of a learning curve. And I think what they will find is that there are players at Premier League level who can do things that players at Championship level can't. And I think a couple of those things would be, one, Roberto Firmino plays the false nine role, I would imagine, in a much better way than any player in the Championship. And I think he dragged them around and caused them problems. And secondly, the way that they play without the ball leads, they basically man-mark the opposition, which means Bamford you know, is pressing one of the centre-backs and they, they have a spare man at the back and that means they leave one of the opposition centre-backs free. And I think what we saw here was Van Dijk and Gomez can both carry the ball forward into midfield really well and exploit the fact that everyone else is occupied. So there'll be a couple of changes from the way that they played in the Championship, but overall I think it was pretty positive. Mm. And any conclusion you'd like to draw for Liverpool on, on this 90 minutes? I mean, they were, they were defensively sloppy. The the word of this summer in terms of doubting Liverpool has been complacency. And I think people maybe underestimate or, or kind of misappropriate that term and, and, and look at it inaccurately. We're not talking about players looking back fondly at what they've done and not caring about this season. We're not talking about players kind of taking a huge sigh of relief. It's those completely inadvertent lapses of concentration or slight loss of focus that at Premier League level, even against one of the promoted teams, will be the difference between conceding three goals and conceding one goal, maybe. And maybe we saw slight elements of that. I thought that Trent Alexander-Arnold looked as flat-footed defensively. I know he's not perfect, but as flat-footed defensively as I've seen him in a Premier League game in a while. Um, Van Dijk obviously makes a mistake that he wouldn't normally make, but... They they did just look a little bit open. I don't know if that's because Naby Keita was playing, you know, and he's not not been playing that much starting, or what. But they did just look a little bit open, and they were they were basically really lucky that Mohamed Salah was absolutely brilliant. I thought he was. I thought what he did really well is he, he seemed to know when to stay high up the pitch and when to drop deep and pick up the ball. You know, no Liverpool players had more shots in a Premier League game than Salah's nine for about four and a half five years. So he kind of dominated his battle. It's interesting what Daniel says about Alexander-Arnold. I agree he wasn't great and got caught out for one of the goals. But I think probably his worst game of last season was the opening day against Norwich. So maybe he's a bit of a Harry Kane figure who takes a a while to get going. The match that Norwich almost won. Famously, yeah. (laughs) So nearly, yeah. Uh, Okay, well, it was a close one this, but it is three points for Liverpool and we move on next to Saturday's action and Craven Cottage This season the Premier League's going to be a little bit different but at Paddy Power we're trying to embrace the new normal by looking at the upside avoid unnecessary journeys that's Fulham's trip to Anfield off fake crowd noise the Emirates has never sounded so good self-isolate well some midfielders do that very effectively avoid European travel shouldn't be a problem for Everton fans when you think about it not that much has changed, really. New normal, same old football. Paddy Power. 18 plus, be gamble aware.org. 
on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Smart Speaker, and now ad-free on The Athletic. This is The Totally Football Show with James Richardson. Saturday lunchtime on the banks of the River Thames. The Premier League season got underway with a 3-0 win for Arsenal at Craven Cottage. It was Lacazette who opened the scoring. Gabriel then added another goal. Part of a very impressive debut for him before Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang scored the best goal you'll see all season, according to Martin Kieran. Bold <laughs> stuff, rivaling Matt there for the prediction uh, crown. But <laughs> Arsenal, there are corollaries that you have to say. Um, William had the three assists. Mkhitaryan had three assists on his Gunners debut as well. And Arsenal equally, last time they went to Craven Cottage, beat Fulham 5-1. That was under Emery. Neither of those things presaged new golden era for the Gunners. But that said, there were so many positives in this performance here. Willian, what a brilliant start. Yeah, I must say I've always been a little bit underwhelmed by Willian. And I think that's uh, maybe why his signing wasn't greeted with uh, particularly positive vibes from the Arsenal supporters. But I thought he finished last season in particular very well for Chelsea. And strangely, Arsenal don't really have a player in that kind of mould, a creative attacking midfielder, um, aside from Ozil, of course, who is, uh, you know, still not involved. So, yeah, it was a very good start for him. Obviously, he was involved in all three goals. He also hit the woodwork from a set piece. And the other signing got a, got a goal as well. So, yeah, I mean... I think this was a very gentle start for Arsenal. I mean, Fulham, it was almost identical side to the one which won the championship playoff final. Um, so they do have more cohesion than they did two years ago. I'm not particularly convinced they're going to be a better side based upon that performance. I think they were really lacking uh, with and without the ball, really. Their pressing was... There was an intention to press, but I don't think it was quick enough or cohesive enough. Um, and with the ball, I thought they looked a little bit lacking in ideas, to be honest. So, yeah, I wouldn't go OTT on Arsenal, but obviously 3-0 is a pretty good start. That Mr. Ozil comparison, it took William just 57 minutes to register more assists for the Gunners than Ozil has managed in 18 Premier League appearances Last season, William, as Daniel Story was pointing out on social media, is now Arsenal's second highest league assist provider in 2020. Remarkable. Yeah, and and not you know not just that. Aside from him, the top chance creator from last season that started for Arsenal was Aubameyang with 26, and we know him ostensibly as a goal scorer, and and 26 is clearly not very many at all. It's not it was it would have put him about in the 90s in the Premier League last season. So. Uh, yeah, they, they 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 needed that chance creator. I agree with Michael though. I mean, Fulham were this is a Fulham defence of which three of them started eighteen games together in the Premier League two years ago, and they had the worst defence in the Premier League two years ago. You know, I I know Scott Parker is absolutely determined to avoid this doing a Fulham by buying too many players, but there are middle grounds, and at the moment their only new arrivals this summer I think are uh, I think Anthony Robinson they signed from Wigan. Uh, and they signed they signed Ariola, but but no one that was in the squad on Saturday was new. So Matt's super excited about Ariola. <laughs> I think he'll make a bit of a tit of himself. <laughs> Very good. Yeah, uh, yeah. I think when Ariola comes into the into the team, he'll offer them a bit more protection maybe than Rodak did on Saturday. And they, they've also signed Ola Aina on loan from Torino, uh, somebody who I saw a lot of playing for Chelsea and who Antonio Conte in particular was a massive fan of and, and had Conte stayed I think that um, that Aina would have found himself playing regularly for Chelsea so I think that's a good a good pickup but but defensively the big worry for me with Fulham 
Fulham was Michael Hector, who, you know, I mentioned Ben White earlier as, as maybe the best defender in the championship last season. Michael Hector wasn't far behind and, and he he looked woefully out of form in this game. And he's one of their key players. And the other one's Alexander Mitrovic. And he started on the bench due to an apparent lack of fitness. So slightly strange one from Parker, but they need to get performances out of those two if they're to, to have any hope. I mean, it's always difficult for the team that wins the playoffs because they have less time to prepare. And obviously that is magnified by a large amount this season because of the tight turnaround between the end of one season and the start of another and, and it's not like Fulham were flying all the way through last season and expecting to go up so it does look a very very tricky task for a relatively rookie manager. Mm, the 3-0 defeat was their 11th top flight derby defeat in a row. Where are they going to be next weekend in the Premier League? Ellen Road against Leeds. Oof. Mm. Quickly on Arsenal, I mean mm. we're right to say that we should hold back praise just yet but it also should be said that the really impressive thing about about what they've done um, is in both of their two games this season both the Community Shield and the first game they've scored exactly the type of goal that Mikel Arteta would want them to score um, playing exactly the type of football he'd want them to play and that's pretty good effort given how long he's been at the club. You know, it takes a fair amount of courage from him to implement that. But it also takes a you know, Martin Keogh mentioned on on Saturday on commentary about kind of the communication between him and the senior pros that then mm. drops down to the young players. And was this the language comment? No, it wasn't it wasn't the language thing, bless him. Um it was a good Martin Keogh point about the communication between the players, which yeah, it must have it must have happened and it must have happened quickly because the the one thing about Arsenal under Emery is that when they were playing well, even it felt kind of felt like the football was sort of happening to them, or the results were happening to them rather than them making it happen. Where for better and for worse now under Arteta, you can at least see a a vision. And and Arsenal fans will tell you there was no way that that squad moves forward sustainably until they had that vision. There are still questions about whether they can replicate it. Not against Fulham, of course, but yeah, I thought that the style of that third goal was for all the over-exaggeration from Keown, was pretty good to watch. Right. Uh, more aggression, the key, according to Mohamed Elneny. Uh, we are much more aggressive now. Everyone, even the kit man, is focused on giving 100% every day. So maybe <laughs> it's the aggressive kit man. Here's your kit. Put it on. It's um, getting them fired up before. Wow. Well, marginal gains. <laughs> I mean, that Arsenal away shirt does look like there has been some aggression leading up to the <laughs> making of it. So. Do you know, I've seen so many kits and so many surprising kits that I can't actually picture it. What did it look like? It's kind of like white and looks like it's slightly almost ah, bloodstained. Right. Yeah. This one was blue, slightly controversially. Why? Because it's Arsenal? Or... Yeah. It's yeah, quite there's... unusual for them to be. Yeah, there's a few strange ones. Leicester wearing maroon felt particularly weird to mm. me. Yeah. Alrighty. Also on Saturday, Newcastle had a big win at West Ham, uh, featuring great debuts from their signings: so Callum Wilson, Jeff Hendrick, and Jamal Lewis, who popped up with an assist. And Palace made mockery of certain people's uh, preseason predictions with a one-nil win over uh, the much-fancied Saints. Ed Quoth Raven says, "Can Pod show uh, some appreciation for Andros Townsend, who put in the cross for Wilfred Zaha's goal?" He's come in for criticism for a while and his place is under threat, but he responded with a really good game on Saturday, says Ed. Should I start again? Ask, do the panel think Zaha will play as well as possible while the transfer window is still open? And if it closes with no move, he will just tail off. Your thoughts? 
Yes, <laughs> to that last okay. one, basically. Right. But I don't think anybody's going to buy him, despite... Uh, I, I like the Elneny quote, but quote of the week, Roy Hodgson on Zaha. He thinks it'd be nice if some club came in and paid the market price for him. Well. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> How far do you think Newcastle can go? And I, I know we've only had 90 minutes, but they did look good. Yeah, they look good against a, a West Ham side that after 90 minutes of the new season has already managed to become a crisis club, which is probably a new record, even by David's goals and Sullivan's standard reputation. They just It just looks so broken. You know, they've got a group of attacking midfielders that they sign for big money on big contracts who don't particularly want to be there anymore. But when they come on to chase a game and, and are forced to get neck ache from watching the ball being smashed from the back to the head of Sebastian Haller for uh, Mikel Antonio to try and feed up the scra- off the scraps on, you kind of have some sympathy. You just don't see any plan at all. Um, I said last week that I was surprised that the Grady and Garner signing was, was the straw that broke the camel's back, but boy, did they need a quick start to the season to kind of reverse that mood, and, and they got the opposite. They were They were absolutely terrible. Well, next up then, let's have a look at Everton's win away at Spurs and whether they might be the Premier League's most improved side. You're listening to The Totally Football Show, sponsored by Paddy Power. Football 2, what a goal! What a header that is, Dominic Calvert-Lewin! Brilliantly headed home! Sunny then, another episode of All or Nothing, uh, Everton taking it all and Spurs really contributing pretty much nothing in a 1-0 defeat at home to the Toffees. That was, as we mentioned back at the start, uh, Everton's first away victory against the Big Six side since December 2013. 40 trips since then without a win, but they look very, very comfortable here. Paul Glover saying Spurs midfield versus Everton midfield, discuss. Yeah, I thought Everton were the better side throughout the game. I mean, even 10 minutes in when Everton probably hadn't put together many attacking moves, I was just quite excited by watching them. I thought James Rodriguez showed some wonderful touches. He didn't necessarily have the end product, but just his his first touch, his appreciation of space, the runs he was making. um, Yeah, I thought looked really good. Um, Allen in in defensive midfield, probably the, the best player on the pitch. Ducouré, maybe not quite at his best, but we know what he can do. It's just the most exciting Everton side that um, I've seen for a while. And yeah, I thought they really deserved the win against the Spurs side who were... It was one of those performances where I don't think you could probably get a single positive from it. It was it was not disastrous, but it was so flat. And yeah, maybe with the exception of Doherty, who made some good runs and got into goal-scoring position as he, he does very well or has done very well for Wolves. But aside from that, I thought they were disjointed and lack of pressing. I thought Son and Kane seemed to be, on a couple of occasions, not understanding each other and not being on the same wavelength. Yeah, uh, early days, but that was worrying for Spurs. Well, there was one moment, a couple of breaks that Spurs had before Everton took the lead when it looked like Son could set up the oncoming Harry Kane, but instead decided to hang on to the ball and, and feed Deli Alley. Instead, possibly because he knows that Harry Kane never scores in the opening month of the season, whether it's August or September. But was the most worrying aspect for Tottenham the fact that the game effectively ended when Everton scored rather than that sparking a reaction? I think the next five minutes had 76% possession for the visitors. 
Yeah, and and um, the person who, who tweeted in about about midfield, I think probably what they were alluding to was that there was nothing coming from Harry Winks in in terms of creativity, and, and presumably what they bought Hoybier for was to to provide some some steel and some effective simple passing, and and you know there he was getting the ball from a throw in and kicking it straight out of play. It was a extremely inauspicious debut from him. Um, we used to seeing Harry Kane look sluggish at the start of the season, but as you say, the whole team. Just really, really woeful. And, and it's difficult, therefore, to say whether Everton were brilliant and, you know, these three new midfielders, attacking players, uh, all settled in brilliantly really quickly or whether they were just given the freedom of the Tottenham Hotspur Stadium and, and, and actually that was the reason that they were able to look so good. Right. Carl Angelotti talking afterwards about James Rodriguez and his ability to handle the pace of the Premier League. And that's one thing that, in, in terms of the speed of the game, wasn't really a factor in this. So as such, we haven't perhaps seen how well he'll be adapted to one of those kind of breakneck Premier League classics. Uh, but very, very fine start for him and uh, and Everton this year. Spurs are going to be off in Bulgaria, actually, on Thursday, second qualifying round of the Europa League. It's a, a round of matches that uh, will throw up all sorts of interesting clashes, including Shamrock Rovers against Milan. Uh, but anyway, uh, Lokomotiv Plovdiv is uh, who's going to be hosting Spurs. Uh, catch that one Thursday. Also on Sunday, a little bit earlier on, Leicester were three 0 winners at West Brom. Did this take you a bit by surprise? Uh, I mean, Leicester started pretty slowly, and they had a, an incredibly makeshift defence in which Wilfred Ndidi was was forced to play central defence. James Justin was also played slightly out of position. But as soon as Leicester scored the first goal, West Brom just capitulated. And as we've said about Fulham, it's, it's it feels very killjoy to damn promoted clubs to a, a season of doom on, based on the opening weekend. But boy, do they need some better players in because Kyle Bartley is is not a Premier League central defender, I'm afraid. Um, and you know, for all the uh, you know for all the excellence of of Brady Diangana and, and Mateus Pereira last season in the Championship, they're not going to get as much time on the ball in in the Premier League. And you know, West Brom's top goal scorers last season in the league got ten each, and that was Hal Robson, Carno, and Charlie Austin. I'd be you know if either of them reaches ten this season, that will be a success story. And they're still their starting strikers. So uh, yeah, there's a huge amount of work to do. I I do wonder with with. You know, the bigger picture stuff with COVID and the kind of uncertain financial climate. I do wonder if Fulham and West Brom are thinking but not saying, let's just bank our money and see what happens because at least they know they will have a financial future that, that hasn't involved them spending twenty, thirty million pounds on players who on big contracts if they go down. But the gap between those and, you know, as I say, an under par in terms of personnel, Leicester team was pretty worrying, I think. Mm. Among the positives for Leicester, meanwhile, the return of James Madison uh, from the bench in this game and Jamie Vardy getting a brace, a couple of uh, penalties for him, after which he made sure uh, to cup his ears to the home end, which, of course, was empty. But, you know, the, the, the point still stands. What is the beef there, Daniel? The beef is basically that West Brom fans constantly taunted Jamie Vardy, which many home and away fans do, but he particularly... Um, let's say, basks in the hate from the West Brom fans. He was recently asked for his all-time top favourite kits, Jamie Vardy, and he didn't pick the Leicester City home kit from the Premier League winning season, but he did pick a West Brom kit just because as a kind of, I love this kit so much because whenever I see it, I know I'm going to score that day, which is, I think we're probably fair to say, pure Jamie Vardy. Very nice. 
anything else on this game or indeed on any of the weekend's matches before we get on to what awaits on the Monday? Not necessarily specifically about this match, although it did apply to this match. I was a little bit surprised that quite a few managers didn't use all three substitutions just because it's going to be a long season. They haven't had a long pre-season uh, that used to using five subs. And just this was one of the games where, yeah, Rogers only used two substitutes. You would have thought maybe give Iheanacho or Chowdhury or Fuchs or someone else on the bench a run out. But yeah, I thought managers would be using up their subs whenever possible, but it seems that's not the case. Mm. Just on what Daniel said about Fulham and West Brom, I agree with that, actually. But I'd like to know what Slavin Bilic thinks about it, because I would imagine that as a, an inexperienced manager, Scott Parker, more sort of malleable to, to what his owners want. But Slavin Bilic maybe would have expected a bit more backing, albeit in, in circumstances that he couldn't have predicted. He'd, he'd said that being in, in the championship was a bucket list thing for him to do. But I think he probably meant just for one season. I see. A quick any other business on on Andy Carroll, who managed to elbow Thomas Suchek fully in the cheek um, after, I think, 18 seconds of the game on Saturday night. The ball from kickoff just went to the back, immediately high ball played up. Carroll went in, leading with his elbow. The VAR checked it, and I, I I was watching with the sound down, and I assumed he was going to be sent off. I think if it had been happened midway through the second half, he might well have been, but... Uh, he just kind of got calmed down from the referee before doing pretty much exactly the same about six minutes later. So it's good to have Andy Carroll back. This is the Totally Football Show, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. The Athletic is the only place you can read articles by Daniel Taylor, Amy Lawrence, Phil Hay, James Pierce, Ollie Kay, and the very best football writers around. Listener, as mentioned, it's September the 14th still, unless you're really taking your time with this show on this day in history do you know what happened it was the first ever double figure scoreline in the football league all the way back in 1889 on september the 14th preston defeated stoke 10-0 woof uh, i bet they thought back in those days that would be par for the course but it's not it has happened 62 times in the intervening century and a bit but never of course in the premier league the biggest Football League scoreline. Do you know what that is? Anybody? 13-1. Th- it is. It's 13-0. It's happened three times. I think most recently in the 50s. But the most recent double figures we've had in the Football League was 87 when Manchester City defeated Huddersfield Town 10-1. Uh, that was in a second division match. Paul Stewart, Tony Adcock and David White each grabbing hat-tricks against a Terrier side uh, that had just appointed Malcolm McDonald. He would be fired and they finished bottom and all that sort of thing. As I say, we're still waiting for the first club to score 10 goals in a Premier League match. Will we ever see that, do you think? Yes, we will. Really? Yeah, I mean, unless unless a European Super League plan is accelerated reasonably quickly, then yes, we will. Everything is moving further apart in terms of finances and gap at the top rather than being narrowed. So yes, we will eventually. I'm not sure. I feel like it's a kind of, it's a barrier beyond which... From the logic that we've had nine plenty of times, including one last season, not even right. by a big six club, I think, yeah, I think we will. But even there, it, it was perfectly set up to reach double figures, and yet something just seemed to... Well, of course, mm. Johnny Evans was very keen to get the 10th in that game, wasn't he? Mm. He yeah. knew the record and was desperately gesturing for his teammates to get the ball quickly so they could inflict further misery on Southampton. I mean, we saw it last in the WSL, didn't we? Arsenal was at Bristol City away, and uh, this... 
well, this weekend, we've had two nines. We have our Arsenal mm. beating West Ham 9-1 and Chelsea scoring nine as well with nine different goal scorers. So maybe you're right, James. Wow. Maybe it's just a barrier that there's, there's uh, you know. Man's not meant to, you know, all woman indeed in this well, case. yeah. Yeah. Mm. All right. Anyway, well, having a go at uh, maybe reaching double figures on Monday will be Sheffield United and Wolves who will uh, meet at Bramwell Lane <laughs> and Brighton and Chelsea. Perhaps that one's a little bit more, uh, you know, conditions are more favourable. I don't know. Egg on your face, James, when they all score 10. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Brighton, uh, Chelsea, you'll be commentating on that one, Matt, for Chelsea TV. How are Chelsea going to line up, do you think? Uh, well, they've got um, some players who won't be playing. So Thiago Silva, uh, kind of only just out of quarantine, only joined up with training last week, so he's not going to feature. Ben Chilwell still got the injury that he arrived with. Hakim Ziyech picked up an injury in pre-season. Mateo Kovacic is suspended, but I would expect that you would see Kai Havertz and Timo Werner. Um, it was only a couple of weeks ago I commented on this fixture, the only pre-season game that, that Chelsea had played. You remember it was one where 2,500 fans were, were let in to the game, which is obviously 2,500 more than will be there uh, for this one. Mm. Um, but yeah, I would suspect that we will see Havertz and probably Werner. And Werner scored after four minutes in the game between these two a couple of weeks ago. So it's it's going to be interesting to see how... Frank Lampard, crowbars, all these all these new signings in at the top end, but we are going to get pretty much the same defence, certainly for this game uh, that was so porous last season. We're, we're, we're thinking that Edouard Mendy seems to be close to joining Chelsea as competition slash replacement for Kepa, but obviously not in time for this game. Matt, the central defencing for Chelsea, is that set in stone? I, I understand that when Thiago Silva's fit, they might start Zuma over Rudiger. Is that... A thing, or is Rudiger still the centre back? That wouldn't surprise me to be to be perfectly honest, because I think that uh, Lampard thinks that Zuma is a, a better bet in the air than Rudiger, which I would agree with, and I think that Rudiger often is kind of defaulted to as Chelsea's best defender because he is pretty much the most experienced, rather than than based actually on the performances that he put in a lot of time last season. I mean, Lampard, like previous Chelsea managers, has been desperate to try and make Andreas Christensen a regular in his team because he's so good uh, on the ball, but defensively he's just not been up to scratch for the last season or so. So I would suspect it. it would be Zuma and Rudiger tomorrow but yeah none of them are certain of their place and and you know there's still half a chance they might get Declan Rice and there's still a chance they might do what they did in the friendly against Brighton and, and put Azpilicueta in there as well and go to three at the back so that's the the area definitely that still needs much work doing. Are you expecting it to be as tight as that friendly uh, which finished 1-1 uh, on Monday evening? I'm not, to be honest, and and this will make me look very daft to people listening on Tuesday morning, I'm sure, but I actually think Chelsea might win this quite comfortably. I quite like Brighton. I think they'll have a decent season, but I'm not sure where their goals come from because Mopé really sort of fell off a cliff after the restart, and and that would be my big concern for them. Albeit, I think they've got an excellent-looking defence now with with Webster and Dunk and the returning Ben White. So it might be tricky, but if Chelsea score early, I think they might be able to run in a couple of goals and win fairly comfortably. Okay. Before that match on Monday, six o'clock, Sheffield United will be hosting Wolves. There's not been much mention of the Blades in previews as as people's kind of top-half contenders. Why do you think that is? I would say because people are very focused on signings and they haven't made any major signings. Right, much as they didn't last year. 
Uh, kind of. I mean, they well, they did subtly. I think they broke their record transfer fee four times last summer. Uh, oh, so without anyone did. noticing. Um, but yeah, I mean, they've replaced the goalkeeper, haven't they? Obviously, they would have liked to have kept Henderson. They've got back Ramsdale. I don't think he's quite as good as Henderson. Um, so that's a slight downgrade. I, I think they'll do okay again. I think they might struggle to get uh, ninth place again, not necessarily because they'll be worse, but because I think a few other sides are, are probably going to be better, like the Southampton, Everton, as we've mentioned. So I think it'll be more competitive for a top half finish. Um, but I don't really see any danger that they'll have a second season syndrome as uh, as others have in the past. I just think they are quite a good team. Yeah, there, there are two ways of looking at it. One is nobody's talking about Sheffield United for the top six or seven or eight. The other thing is that they're not talking about Sheffield United for relegation, which, given where they were two, three years ago, is a remarkable feat. You know, Sheffield United and Wolves are the two clubs who have very quickly, in very, very different ways, kind of established themselves as automatic stay-up picks in the Premier League for, for teams that were in the Championship not that long ago. So that I kind of see it as a compliment. It, Chris Wilder will think if nobody's talking about Sheffield United, that's probably a good thing because it means everything's pretty much bobbing along fine. Yeah, and whilst their signings aren't particularly eye-catching, they are they are all interesting. Jaden Bogle and Max Lowe from Derby, but both had very good seasons last season. Oliver Burke, a player who's really lost his way, having been so highly touted when he left Forest for for Leipzig. Interesting to see if Chris Wilder can get something out of him. You know, he, he couldn't or chose not to with with Ravel Morrison, and then Ethan Ampadu, who's a, another player who you know I've obviously kept a, a close eye on, but had a loan spell that didn't work out at Leipzig last season. So it's a big one for him with the Euros coming up at the end of the season and, and he's often looked a pretty pivotal player when he's played for Wales. So not quite make or break, but for somebody who was playing senior football at the age of 15, he's definitely seen his career stall largely through no fault of his own over the last couple of years. So it, it feels important that he nails down a place in the team, whether that be as a central defender or a, a holding midfielder. Mm. The spectre of second season syndrome, meanwhile, a previous examples of the genre included Ipswich, who finished fifth in 2001 and then got relegated the following season. Reading also going down in 2008 after finishing eighth in 2007. So, But neither of those teams, from my very distant memory, neither of those teams had anywhere near such a set strategy for approaching their opponents in the Premier League as as Sheffield United do. And Wilder sees no reason to change that. They, they did drop off after lockdown, it should be said. But um, yeah, I think they will, they will pick up enough points in games where people expect them to maybe draw, maybe lose, that they'll be fine. OK. They may be more than fine. We shall see. Wolves anyway, the opposition, where manager Nuno Espirito Santos just signed a new three-year contract, Zafod 5, saying that could be Wolves' biggest signing of the summer. Indeed it could. Although I'm very interested to see this highly touted Fabio Silva kid. Um, yes. Know. The man of all the agents fees. Right. <laughs> yes. Mm. That's all coming up on Monday. Still to come in today's show, we'll be touching on some of the big stories around uh, the world of football beyond the Premier League. First, though, odds with Lee Price. Hello, listeners. Or should I say listener? Hi, Mum. What a breathless weekend of football that was. The games keep on coming and tonight we have an early example of why I don't do the numbers at Paddy Power. Yes, alright, I'm not that bright. But also, I just can't separate Sheffield United and Wolves. They're two teams I find it very difficult to write off. Thankfully, the actual adults and Power Tower are more decisive and they make Wolves the favourites here at 13-10. to 10. 
with Sheffield United priced at 12 to 5. The other game, to be fair, I find easier to call, and our traders make Chelsea, now known as the Stamford Globetrotters, odds on to beat Brighton, who are a chunky 4 to 1 to get a win. Elsewhere, Mo Salah's hat trick makes him the clear favourite in the golden boot market, obviously, but to be fair, he was joint favourite anyway, and it is a long season. The other notable reactions to the weekend came with Arsenal, yes, Arsenal, shortening in the top four race, although we still think they'll finish fifth, and David Moyes cementing his spot at the top of the sack race betting market. Harsh. Leeds did quite well, I don't know if you noticed. Uh, Twitter would have told you that relentlessly if you follow any of their supporters, and Leeds are now even to finish in the top ten, leapfrogging Southampton in that market, and yes, I'll say it, they were very good. You can find out these odds and more at paddypower.com or the Paddy Power app. Prices are accurate at the time of recording. It's over 18s only. Terms and conditions apply. And when the fun stops, stop. Matt, you were getting very excited this week on social about Man City's academy lineup. Yeah, it doesn't take much uh, to make me laugh. And when you see City with Slicker in goal, I, you know, enjoyed Billy Crystal's work as much as anybody. That, that right. certainly did make me smile. So uh, City, uh, what is this? They're under 18s or something? It was the development squad, so under 23s. Right. Okay. Uh, yeah, and this is Kieran Slicker, born in Oldham, Scotland, under 18 international. According to Manchester City's website, he is an agile shot stopper and a calming presence between the sticks. That very much looks like a copy and paste job from whoever's <laughs> written that. Nice. Uh, I noticed there's also a, a Wright Phillips in the lineup that you tweeted. Yes, and, and this is Sean's son, DiMaggio. Yeah, he's been there for a while. Wanna feel old? Sean Wright, Philip's son, etc. and so on. Crikey. All righty. Uh, now, loads coming up uh, across the Totally Network. Monday, Matt, you're going to be hosting the Totally Football League show, the first of the, the week's two editions. Uh, what are you going to be talking about? A bit of Harrogate, perhaps? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, Harrogate 4-0 winners at Southend in uh, their first game in the EFL. They've got this great situation whereby Simon Weaver, the manager, Harrogate just into the EFL. He is now the EFL's longest serving manager. Um, so we'll definitely be talking about them. Barrow, the other new boys, conceded uh, a harsh penalty late on. Drew 1-1 with Stevenage, but they were cheered by a message of support flown over by Morecambe saying good luck in the EFL, which was quite nice to see. Yeah, very good. So we've got Robin Cowan of uh, Match of the Day and Final Score and WSL coverage on the BBC with Adrian Clark and Sam Parkin and I. So that's the Monday show. And then Thursday, it's the Totally Football League show, Extra Time with Ali Maxwell and George Ellick. Crikey. Meantime, there's more WSL coverage in the Offside Rules WSL edition which is coming up on Tuesday and we'll certainly be taking in those nine goal wins for Chelsea and Arsenal, and of course, Alex Morgan's arrival at Spurs should be good for cup action, etc. And so on. She was the the tea drinking uh, USA forward who sparked controversy with her goal celebrations. Well, she was also probably the best player of the tournament as well. Also I mean, that, yeah. Yeah, I mean, uh, let, let, let's be fair. This is a massive signing. You look at the the results from the WSL this weekend. As I mentioned, two of the big sides scored nine goals. You know, there's a real danger of the top three in the in the WSL just almost eating up everyone else and and it being a, a division of two divisions. And this is exciting, not just because it's a big name like Penile Harder or, you know, the others that have gone to the big sides, but she's gone to a side who have only been in the WSL for one season. So, you know, hopefully she's the kind of player who is good enough to, to really take them to new heights. So, yeah, I think it's by far the most exciting signing the WSL has seen. I know we've said that a few times this summer, but uh, yeah, more than ever with her. 
If Spurs women can sign a top striker, why can't the men's side? On a very tenuous link to that, it is interesting that I saw someone asking whether Daniel Levy, because it was a deal of such magnitude, um, whether Daniel Levy would have got involved in a deal like that. And I don't know the answer, but it would be interesting to know it because... Um, you know, the commercial potential of having Morgan, even on a fairly short-term deal for, for Spurs women, will be absolutely ginormous. And it would be really pleasing to me if he did get involved in that, if he saw it as a, as an opportunity for, for Spurs as a, you know, as a complete brand rather than just for the women's team. So um, I don't know. And it's remarkably hard to get, you know, straight answers out of, of Daniel Levy or even get to him at all. But it would be interesting to know. OK. Also out on Tuesday, in what's looking a very busy day for your ears, listener, is the Totally Scottish Football Show, which may or may not touch on the dramatic situation at St Mirren, where they had not one, not two, but three goalkeepers going down with coronavirus. So, hmm. And uh, on the same day, Totally Football Show European Edition will be out with Rafa, Jules, Alvaro and James Horncastle. And uh, a bit of homework, actually, if you want to check out the remarkable goal scored by Irving Cardona for Brest. Uh, you've seen that, haven't you, Michael? No, I've not seen any Brests on uh, the internet this week, no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so it's just extraordinary. What I said earlier, it's even the defender central and the Mongols. Put in extraordinary breast action into Google. It will come up, no question about that. You might also check out the remarkable uh, miss from that Belgian game, uh, the details of which I don't have in front of me, but it's just none more. No, it's not about the details with that miss, is it? Really? He's he's basically stood with the ball at his feet in front of goal and he stands on it and falls over. He had about three seconds and three touches and yes... Somehow managed to skew it along the goal line out for a goal kick. I'm Go. just watching this uh, Irving Cardona goal, and yes. it's better than that De Canio volley for West Ham all those years ago. Is that fair? Right, because there's a similar kind of physics-defying bit of action. He he leaps into the air and does a. I'm not entirely sure what a kind of scissor kick. Yeah, and he's on an angle as well. So to score past the keeper at his near post from there is pretty special. But he gets his both feet up so high off the ground. I'm calling it. That's better than De Canio. Crikey. Other big European stories that we'll be featuring probably on Tuesday include Paris Saint-Germain's nightmare start to the season. They lost against Lens in their opening game. And then the uh, big classique with Marseille Sunday night. We'll be touching on probably Eden Hazard and the Eden Hazard because he's, he's turned up overweight again. And looking ahead to the start of the Bundesliga and Serie A campaigns. And, of course, previewing Milan's visit to Shamrock Rovers in the second qualifying round of the Europa League that we mentioned a little bit earlier on. As Daniel Story wrote, absolutely gutting that a generation of kids will miss out watching a game live that would be a footballing anecdote they could treasure for years. Yeah, they played uh, Juventus in 2010 and there's there's photos of Del Piero wearing a Shamrock Rovers shirt at the end of the game. But yes, it's obviously gutting that the game will be played and no one will go. Indeed. Well, that's it for today's show. hope you've enjoyed our thoughts on the opening 90 minutes of this campaign. Many thanks to Daniel, Michael and Matt. And do enjoy all the shows throughout the week and have a great week in general, listener, for now. From all of us here, it's goodbye. 
You've been listening to The Totally Football Show, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. Keep up to date with everything Totally at thetotallyfootballshow.com and follow us at The Totally Show on Twitter and Insta. Check out all of the Athletic's football podcasts on Apple, Spotify and all the usual places or listen ad-free on the Athletic app. The Totally Football Show is a Muddy Knees Media production and sponsored by Paddy Power. Muddy Knees Media.